0: Happy Monday, boys and girls. It is, uh, it's been a crazy week around here. Uh, We are going through hopefully the final uh, couple rounds. Oh, sorry. Uh, Final couple rounds of our uh, capital raise for a boutique hotel that we were doing in Nashville. So um, it has definitely been all hands on deck. In fact, it's so crazy that Andy is having to wear napkins around his ears uh, (laughs) to keep everything in line. I've got to show you guys this for everybody that's watching. I mean, look at that. Look at those napkins.
1: (laughs) <laughs> it's to stop my ears from bleeding i've been working through the nights
0: yeah it's and andy it's your last week in uh in puerto rico is it not
1: i'm leaving tomorrow unfortunately i have to go back and see tyler in person that's wow. it's just the worst day of my life actually <laughs>
0: it's the, this is the worst ever yeah sorry that uh, you don't get to work from the beach anymore that sounds so terrible
1: it is it actually is terrible excuse me
0: <laughs>
1: it is its Oh, that's
0: funny. Uh, well, anyways, so we are always, we are constantly raising capital for our investment opportunities. We typically do 506B friends and family raises. So if you are interested in investing in commercial real estate investments passively, uh, feel free to reach out. There's a link in the description below um, to reach out to us, office at investwithhamilton.com. Uh, reach out, set up a call with me, quick 15-minute call, just to kind of dive into your background, your investment criteria, what you're looking to do. And we'll talk a little bit about what I've got going on and uh, get you on our roster. So the next time we have a project coming out, you are welcome to join us in it. Uh, anyways, so let's go ahead and dive on into the Nashville market. So let's see here. 655-acre master development pitch for Gallatin. This is a absolutely massive deal uh coming at us from the business journal uh let's see here for his national debut one florida executive is planning one of the largest development master plans in the city's periphery um how andy do you know off the top of your head how big barry uh farms is
1: 600 acres
0: so most oh they probably talk about that in in this article then so Barry, yes do do what wow look at you look at you um getting a little bit of feedback Andy. I don't know if that's your mic or if that's coming from my headphones but um it's good now uh cool okay Jim Harvey president of Tampa-based Coulterland is eyeing the 655 acres for Nexus a multi-phase mixed-use project in Gallatin for those of you that are not familiar with Gallatin it is just northeast of downtown probably about 30 minutes 40 minutes outside of town uh, let's see here. Plans to close on the first slice of land, which is 177 acres, located at the intersection of Highway 109 and Red River Road in September. Looks like total infrastructure cost for the project will be around $108 million. That's uh, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, let's see. Its surface area is more than double that of Century Farms, the 310-acre master development in Antioch, and one of its closest peers would be the 600-acre Berry Farms in Franklin. So, Berry Farms is a, is a beautiful master plan development, um, obviously is one of the largest in the area, which is why I thought of it uh, when this came up, so it was cool to see that they mentioned that in here, of course. Let's see, master plans will take around 10 years to finish and will include 1.1 million square feet of mixed-use development featuring office space, retail, and 900 department units across 124 acres, 109 acres of business park use, 1,350 residences, including up to 260 townhomes and 140 attached villas and amenity space. Uh, They want to break ground on the first phase, which would be the residences this fall. Uh, There's no construction loan in the public record yet, so that doesn't necessarily mean anything. They could be looking to finalize that. And it looks like they have not selected a general contractor either. That is a massive project for Gallatin. Pretty exciting to see what is going on out there. Uh, You know, Gallatin has had some pretty exciting news recently as well. I believe Facebook is opening up some offices up there. Um, So it's, uh, it's growing rapidly. Moving on this next one, Element Music Row apartments sell to Camden Property Trust for record price. This is a great project. Um, I mean, basically exactly where you would want to be if you're going to build apartments in Nashville. This is where uh, pretty much everybody used to park when going down to Midtown. Uh, That's where that lot was. Let's see. This is also from the Business Journals, by the way. Uh, Just weeks after its Nashville debut, a Texas real estate trust has outpaced the market's biggest apartment investors. Houston's Camden Property Trust paid $157.94 million for the Element Music Row on Demumbrian Street. The price, which equals $367,000 per unit, is a record. That is a massive record. That's a huge record. Um, I mean, look, that just shows you the demand for multifamily in Nashville. You wouldn't be paying a price record per door if you didn't believe that the rents are going to support that. It's in a phenomenal location. You're right off the roundabout at Music Row. You're near all of the most popular bars in Midtown, and you're just off of the interstate. So the access is pretty phenomenal here. And it is a beautiful apartment complex. It does have some pretty good views too. We've been looking in the Nashville market for years to add to our existing portfolio, said Kim Callahan, who directs the firm's investor relations. Uh, let's see. It's their second apartment purchase in Greater Nashville. Earlier this month, they spent $89 million on 328 units in Franklin. Andy, we need to call them. Clearly, they're <laughs> they very active and looking to buy in Nashville. Uh, I bet we could find something to sell them. Uh, let's see. Element Music Row buy, however, surpassed what had been the largest price ever paid for a Nashville apartment complex, which was the Broadstone Gulch selling for $339,000 per unit in December of 2019. So I mean, all in all, I mean, $27,000, give or take more uh, per door, Uh, not a huge I mean, look, it's that doesn't sound like a lot. But that's what an 8% increase over the record. I mean, that's a, that's a lot, (laughs) especially when you're talking about, you know, percentage points of returns to investors. Uh, That's that's pretty significant. That's really cool to see. Um, let's see the complex of seller and developer was Childress Klein, which has offices in Charlotte and Atlanta. They paid $6.25 million for the vacant land in 2014. Can you imagine getting that land for $6.25 million today? It just, it wouldn't even, it's, I mean, that, like uh, back in 2014, that was a crazy price. Now you're looking at that going, damn, they got to steal for that. As of January, the 19 story property was appraised at 163.53 million. That's, that's just outstanding. So good news for the apartment market in Nashville. It is still very, very strong. All right. Uh, Let's see. This one's from the Nashville Post. Major development eyed for the east side site. Love this because it is immediately next door to four and a half acres that I own uh, and have bought. So that is, uh, this is going to be, we actually, I've actually met with these buyers um, last month or two months ago to kind of look at their plans and see how we can work together on our projects. Really excited for what this group has going on. Let's see here real quick. We've got a question from On Point 7. What other markets do you focus on? Um, So On Point, every month, or I'm sorry, every week, we do a market watch. Uh, We talk about other markets across the country that we think you should keep an eye on or not keep an eye on, depending on how they're performing. Um, As far as what we specifically are monitoring right now, Nashville is absolutely number one, because we're based here. Chattanooga is number two, because we just opened up uh, a, basically a branch of our operations out there. Uh, when we bought the Newell Tower, a nine story office tower downtown in Chattanooga's in- Innovation District. Uh, so we're actively looking to acquire more assets in the Chattanooga area uh, to continue to, to hit, you know, critical mass there. Um, I- I'm also very intrigued by Huntsville and Louisville. Um, Louisville, less so than Huntsville. I think Huntsville right now is the number one multifamily market in the country, just in terms of investor demand. Um, and there's plenty of room to go build more apartments out there. So that that to me is really interesting. At some point, we will look to expand into Chattanooga. I'm sorry, not Chattanooga into Atlanta. Uh, because Atlanta to me is just it's a great market. It's growing. Uh, constantly, it has never stopped growing, which is really interesting to watch. So it seems to me like it doesn't really matter if you buy within a 100 mile radius of downtown Atlanta, it's going to eventually catch up there. Um, And then of course, I'm a big fan of Austin. I go down to Austin, Texas. I mean, outside of the pandemic, I go to Austin three to five times a year, just because it's it's such a fun city. It's very similar to Nashville. It's got an amazing nightlife. The city is just really cool and beautiful. So
1: Yeah. 1.7 Puerto Rico, also another uh, big market on our list. (laughs) Yeah, tell them about that. Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, it sounds like a joke, but actually, we are looking at some projects down here. I want to fly Kyler up here to look at one of them. We think um, me and my analyst team took a deep look into financials of one project. They do crazy things over here, like having 0% capital gains tax, 0% income tax, 4% corporate tax. And they give you like major tax credits if you invest in Puerto Rico. So it's actually a pretty cool market to look at. uh, That is, you know, has all the advantages and benefits of investing in a US based system. But also, they get to set their own income tax rates because they're technically a territory. So pretty cool stuff.
0: Yeah. Andy on point is saying, yep, right in my backyard. Hey, Andy, are, will you check your mic real quick? Cause I keep, every time you talk, I'm getting feedback. Um, it sounds, yeah, I'm trying straggling. to fix it. Okay. Okay. So you do, you're hearing it too. Just making sure. Awesome. Um, okay, cool. Let's dive into this next one. So New York company plans Dickerson Pike project after $9.26 million purchase. So, uh, New York city area development company has paid a nice, pretty penny, um, for multiple East Nashville parcels, Um, And they have announced a large-scale mixed-use project. Um, Let's see. uh, It's an entity that is affiliated with Rethink Capital Partners, a company focused on undertaking socially responsible development uh, that is based in White Plains, New York. I am uh, a big fan of that, obviously. I mean, our company is also very focused on socially responsible development. We think that there is, uh, you know, the only reason that people don't like commercial real estate developers is because there are a small handful that have – Uh, that don't take the neighborhoods into account and don't take into account the the kind of impact that you really have when you're doing projects like this. So uh, let's see, it's at 1410 Dickerson Pike. My project is 1404 immediately, like literally we share an alleyway um, with them. Um, at the near, uh, the intersection of Dickerson and Douglas, uh, let's see TTF investments was the seller. Uh, they were the, they sold the bulk of the site, 27 acres for 8.75 million. And they paid $3.3 million for that land back in 2016 and 2017. Um, looks like another couple sold several other properties for 510 grand um let's see it looks like they have also acquired some uh, some properties adjacent to the just bot site um that has not yet that have not yet been announced um oh look at that there they they mention us uh dive motel and the 2.97 acre site on which an llc that includes tyler cobble uh sit immediately next door we're doing the provisionary um you know which of course we, we did a whole video on that if y'all want to look into it you can just search east nashville investment or something like that i think that uh, that video will pop up on the project that we're doing there. And uh, so, yeah, yeah. So that's it for uh, National Markets. Let's dive on into Market Watch. You know, last week uh, we had uh, discussed about how each of these markets that we've been looking at have always been positive. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I And I also do not look at these before Andy sends me the articles, by the way, because I like to kind of read through it and formulate my opinion as we're going. So I am interested to see... Uh, if Las Vegas, uh, which is the market that Andy has chosen for this week is going to uh, perform or not. So let's dive on. in. again, this is the Urban Land Institute's emerging trends in real estate. Um, highly recommend if you're interested in, in development, uh, or you know, real estate investment, anything like that whatsoever, highly recommend that you get involved with the They do great things for um, for, every, for, for commercial real estate. Okay, so the, they are the lowest overall real estate prospect that we've had so far on the list. They, they're coming in at 68. Most everything else that we've looked at was in the top 20. So this is interesting. They are in 68, which is the bottom. Uh, let's see, They are more than one standard deviation below the mean, uh, which means they're in the bottom third of the uh, sites that are listed here on the U.S. markets to watch. They are number 74 in terms of home building prospects. building homes, I'm probably not gonna be looking at Las Vegas. So uh, I bet you can go ahead and guess that the (laughs) metrics for Las Vegas are probably not that great. They are considered a niche market under the visitor and convention centers. So that also includes Cape Corral, Fort Myers, Charleston, Deltona, Daytona, Honolulu, New Orleans, Orlando and Virginia Beach. And in terms of local market perspective investor demand, they are a 2.88 out of five, uh, which again puts them towards the lower half of the West. Now, look, they're not as bad as Detroit, which is sitting at 2.33. Uh, but you know, they're behind Kansas City, Virginia Beach, Omaha. I mean, there's there's some cities in here that I I wouldn't think would be very interesting that Vegas is behind. So that's Interesting to see. Let's dive on into this uh, 2021 Las Vegas real estate market investing forecast from Million Acres. See what what uh, what we can kind of glean from that data. Las Vegas is most well known as the country's gambling and entertainment hotspot, but many people don't realize the city is seeing a lot of growth in other industries. Las Vegas has been attracting a number of businesses relocating from other cities and is also gaining popularity as a place for startups. Um, you know, it. Uh, let's see. Oh, on point seven, sorry, I'm just now seeing your question. You're asking, what is it called? If you're asking about the the development that we are doing, it's called The Provisionary. Um, it's at 1404 Dickerson Pike. Um, you could look up East Nashville Investment Opportunity, I think, on YouTube, and we did a whole video on it, kind of walking through uh, the project. The project has changed a little bit, as developments tend to do, but um, that's that's kind of it for now. Uh, let's see. So it'll be interesting. This, this article may take a more positive approach on Vegas. I would imagine that Vegas is doing poorly right now just because of one COVID, but two, the flight to the Southeast and Southern cities. Um, there's probably not a whole lot of people that are really looking to move to a, a place like Vegas right now. Let's see. Uh, it's one of the sunniest cities in the country. Also has a very friendly business climate uh nevada nor city of las vegas have personal or corporate income tax that's pretty pretty big the site eoi uh link that andy sent andy did you send a link over to
1: what link i don't know
0: okay um yeah on point i'm not sure um i mean if you go let's let's just go to youtube If you just go over to YouTube, type in East Nashville Investment Offering, it's this one. So it's just uh, Investment Offering, Commercial Development in East Nashville, 784 views. We put this together when we were doing um, our investor pitch, initially raising capital for the site. So you'll be able to go through that and watch uh, Bruce Peterson and I, who's my partner, uh, one of my partners on the deal, uh, kind of talk about what we've got going on there.
1: Oh, he he might mean ULI. Is that the one? that he's asking what the ULI oh, emerging trends yeah, report is Yeah, ULI,
0: so that's Urban Land Institute. Uh, you just go to uli.org
1: and look for their emerging trends document. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah,
0: yeah, the PDF. Yep, that's it. Urban Land Institute, uli.org um, and they'll they'll have all that information on there. Also there should be links below in the description. Uh, let's see here. Okay, so let's see. The famous strip only makes up a very small piece of Vegas and doesn't actually represent the lifestyle and culture of the people who live there. Uh, I would hope not because <laughs> Vegas would not, uh, would not be a very big city otherwise. Let's see. Okay, imp- unemployment is still high. While casinos and resorts are beginning to back up and are beginning to open back up and the number of travelers heading out to Las Vegas is slowly increasing, the unemployment rate is still quite high. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into the numbers here in a minute. Uh, rental vacancies are low. Despite the high unemployment r- rate, rental vacancies have been trending downward to record low rates. That's a great sign. This shows a growing demand for rentals in the area and a positive sign for investors. Uh, rental prices are also up as vacancy lowers. I mean, look it's supply and demand, right? If you if your vacancy is decreasing, your costs are going to, or your yeah, cost is going to increase. This has been a positive trend since 2016, and prices are increasing at a faster rate than the national average. Interesting. Okay, wow. Unemployment is 9.9%. That is really high. <laughs> that is really, really high. National average is 6.3% right now. Um, and I think Nashville is down to like 3.9, give or take. I mean, we're, we're pretty low. So, you know, that is, uh, that's rough. Um, median price for a house is $322,000. That is, uh, I believe that's above the national average. Yep. Definitely above the national average. Uh, median rent price is $1,508 per month. Let's see, they've got a 1.7 month housing supply. So that's, I mean, that's pretty healthy, um, in terms of, you know, if you're going to be buying and investing in Las Vegas, You know, a typical healthy housing supply is somewhere around four to six months, give or take. So if you're at 1.7 months, that means demand is still high, uh, which, you know, is good to see. Rental vacancies down to 2.9%. That's really strong. I mean, that's really, really strong. That's basically, you know, people are moving across the street at that point. All right, let's go into this next article from Forbes. Are Vegas home prices sustainable? Uh, January real estate summary. Let's see. Las Vegas home prices have reached all-time highs during the pandemic. This has happened despite an unprecedented, an unprecedented. Wow, I cannot. I just. I am not able to speak today. (laughs) Uh, Pandemic-related recession, with unemployment uh, reaching an all-time high of 34.2 percent, still sits at roughly double the national average uh, to this day. While housing has grown more unaffordable for most over the past year, it's luxury Vegas real estate that has been driving the market. Interesting. So, uber luxury real estate. Las Vegas and Southern Nevada has not only blown away records on its luxury market for 2020 that are up 38% for a $1 million and above, but the uber luxury market of $4 million plus has hit heights never seen before in the Valley and doubled its performance from 2019. So, Doubled. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. I mean, look, you know, you want to take a guess at what that is? It's people from California who are selling out and going to the nearby state that has no state income tax. I mean, you know, they've got a lot of money to spend to buy nice houses. Uh, In December alone, let's see, 129 homes priced a million dollars and above changed hands in Southern Nevada. That's insane. $129 million worth of real estate of luxury real estate traded in December. That's pretty remarkable. Let's see low interest rates along with the pandemic related and remote work related exodus from coastal cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles and New York uh, are contributing to these factors. Housing and unemployment rate uh, tend to show a strong inverse relationship. um, Of course, you know, like we said, unemployment rate was high. Housing is very low. Um, I mean, Nevada's number eight in terms of property taxes. Uh, Number one, so this is ranking one to 50. Number one is the best. 50 is the worst. That's surprising. Texas is 37 and Tennessee is 29. How's that even possible? Um, Property tax component rate. That's really interesting because Tennessee has a great tax structure, but I guess it's taking into account something else that I just do not know about, uh, Utah is number three. That's great. I wonder what, Oh, New Mexico. Number one, California is only 14. I have a hard time <laughs> thinking that Tennessee has a worse tax structure than California. That is, a, I mean, it's just property taxes. Let's property keep that in tax mind. Only. Yeah. Let's yeah. keep that in mind. So, I mean, property taxes are at the end of the day, not the biggest taxes that you're going to be paying anyway. Right. So let's keep that in mind. Wow. Indiana. uh, Look at that. Illinois is 45. I mean, that's why people coming from Chicago love Nashville so much. Oh, let's see here. Um, House price trends do not match the current economic climate in Vegas. The price growth is not sustainable, says Mashvisor. So it's very likely that home prices will drop in the Las Vegas real estate market in 2021. That's not good. Let's see. CoreLogic, which showed a 6.4% increase in Vegas real estate year-over-year year in 2020, predicts a 6.5% drop by August of 2021. But that view is not universally held. That may be probably on the more aggressive side of, of people thinking that prices are going to drop. That's interesting. I mean, you know, you've got some, uh, some factors that are saying Vegas is a good market to invest in, um, you've got a lot of factors that are saying that uh, it's, it's not good to invest in. I mean, look, the positives that we just talked about were all on the uber luxury side of the real estate there, right? And, and they're already saying that those are su- not sustainable. So, you know, to me, um, I would probably be staying away from Las Vegas as an investment, um, as, a, as an investable market at the moment. Um, but, uh, you know, you're welcome to formulate your own your own opinion concise. The barber just says PA does not surprise me. Whereas PA (laughs) number 30, 30, is it 34 or 31? Either way, below average.
1: Yeah, either way below average. (laughs) I mean, I was gonna say Tyler just touch wrapping up this point is that we've seen I mean, across every market, the luxury end is actually doing well, especially in areas that are not named California because people are leaving the end, they had a lot of money. And now they're leaving. And so the places that they're moving to are doing well. Great, but it's hard to sustain that in the face of 10% unemployment rate, right? When it, it, Las Vegas will never be the same, right? Nevada, I mean, Las Vegas is specific, not just Nevada, it's Las Vegas, right? So Las Vegas will never be the same until all these casinos are at 100%, the, uh, period, right? With the, and all the business conventions that they have to cater to, all the huge events, and that might be coming back end of this year next year but it's gonna take a while especially when you have and i looked up nashville's unemployment rate it's at 4.2 right now so las vegas unemployment rate is 2.5 times nashville's unemployment rate it's just night and day and it's really really hard to invest in a place when your workforce is having like which is the base of the economy right the luxury stuff is good right. But the workforce is the base of the economy. And if the base of the economy is doing bad, then the it's going to affect everything else.
0: That's exactly what I was going to touch on, but you nailed it. I mean, it's look, if, if the workers who really drive Vegas, right, because you've got to have all of those people that are there, you know, turning the rooms over, that are that are running the casino, they're bartending. I mean, if, if they're unemployed, they're not doing well. I mean, the market overall is just not going to do well. It's just how it is. Um, All right, let's move on to the future of commercial real estate. So this first article is from business journals. Many small businesses are having trouble paying rent and customers aren't returning fast enough. Let's see. Oh, we got a question about, uh, about Vegas real quick from Big Show Entertainment Network. Hey man, what's going on? Uh, The Vegas housing market was down prior to the pandemic. Interesting. So yeah, I mean, uh, do you have anything else that uh, you could add to that? Uh, It'd be interesting to have that have that conversation. But yeah, I mean, Vegas is such an interesting market. Anyway, it's you know, it's such a niche, real estate market, I would be a little wary of it, uh, regardless, because I mean, I know that the last article we just read wanted to claim that, hey, you know, this isn't the only thing that's going on in Vegas, right? The strip is not all of Vegas. But that is the majority of what Vegas is. I mean, it, it's just it just is right the strip the casinos, the you know, the lifestyle. Um so
1: Tyler, let me bring my friend who is working out of Vegas real estate market onto the show. She has a lot of thoughts and opinions. And she makes a lot of content about why she thinks Vegas is good. So I think she'd be good interview guest. I'm mm-hmm. actually going to email her right now.
0: Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. Let's have a let's have that conversation. See, see what her thoughts are on Vegas. Okay, diving back in. Uh, so we're talking about uh, small businesses are having trouble paying rent, customers are not returning fast enough. Let's see more than half of minority owned small businesses and more than a third of small businesses overall said that they had trouble paying rent in June and customers are not flocking back fast enough as COVID-19 ebbs. This is interesting because we're seeing, uh, pretty much the, yeah, a big show, uh, entertainment saying Vegas is unlike any other market in the country. It, it really is. I mean, it's such a niche, niche market. Um, let's see, but yeah, this, this article is interesting because I, uh, I mean, we've kind of experienced the opposite. I mean, we've collected 100% of our rent since COVID happened. I mean, we were, of course, we got out there and helped our tenants as quickly as we could. But everybody's really been doing fine since, I mean, December, maybe even earlier than that. I mean, Nashville really opened up back in December. I mean, I just remember going down to Broadway and you're like, wow, it's like COVID never happened back in December, which is kind of crazy. But you know, I I do also have to take into account and remind myself like Nashville is a very different market. The rest of the country is not necessarily like this. Let's see findings come from a survey by small business network alignable, which recently polled 3,800 businesses about their rent status. 53% of minority business owners said they had trouble paying rent in June, up eight percentage points from May, and disproportionately higher than the 37% of small business owners overall, who reported having trouble paying rent. That's interesting. I wonder why they were affected so disproportionately. Okay, well, here we go. One word answer is access. Greater access leads to greater outcomes, whether it's access to financial resources, business services, suppliers, or other business owners with whom one can network, and minority-owned businesses have never been working on a level playing field, Alignable CEO and co-founder Eric Grove said. He pointed to reports that minority-owned business owners also had trouble accessing the Popular Paycheck Protection Program, being rejected at a rate of almost two times that of non-minority businesses. How is that even possible? I mean, that's ridiculous that that's even a stat. I mean, that's crazy. Um, Sorry, that just threw me off. That's the, I mean, rejected at twice the amount of non-minority businesses, that's just... Sorry. Um, concise The barbers jumping in. In the hair industry, barbershops and salons, I haven't noticed much struggle. However, new leasing seems to be outrageous if you're looking for a new location right now. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, if you're anything like Nashville, I mean, prices have only gone up, right? I mean, it's, and vacancy has gone down. It's just, it's impossible to find another space. Um I mean, businesses are doing well. And a lot of there's also businesses that are leaving these other cities and coming to places like Nashville. We're working with a lot of them that are relocating here because they got shut down in California. They got shut down in Chicago and they were, you know, look, we can't survive if we don't have a business. We've got to move somewhere and open. So it's really interesting. Uh, It shouldn't be surprising after over a year of intense financial impact on business owners that those who had difficulty accessing the financial lifeline provided to get businesses through the crisis would be in a worse financial position exiting the crisis. Of course. Uh, Rent challenges have big implications for the commercial real estate sector, which is adapting to a new normal in the office and retail sectors. Let's see. Industries with biggest difficulties paying rent in June included construction, transportation, travel, beauty, and entertainment, with 40% or more businesses having trouble in those industries. It's really interesting because construction wasn't even really shut down uh, as an industry um, during the pandemic because it was deemed essential, um, unless you were, you know, of course, New York or wherever, they just shut everything down. But I don't know. It's, it's weird reading articles like this. Honestly, it's weird going through stuff like this and then looking at it from the Nashville lens, right? Because we have not been affected like this. And maybe it's because of our leadership. Maybe it's because Nashville is just one of those markets that um, is fortunate enough to be in whatever bubble it's in. Because we also didn't experience too, too rough of a downturn back in 2008 either. Uh, but it's crazy to see that this is still happening around the country. We're optimistic we will see more growth there as we get deeper into the summer, but clearly the climb back will be harder and more challenging for minority-owned business, minority businesses who found less support resources over the last year. Let's see. Trouble stems from a lack of customers and rising supply costs, which 55% of small business owners say have hit their bottom line. 48% of small business owners say they have half or fewer customers than they had before the pandemic, and 57% report having half or less the monthly income uh, than they had before COVID-19. I mean, of course, if you're not making that much money, it's going to be really tough to, to, um, you know, to recover, right. I mean, and and pay your rent and and deal with all that kind of stuff. So let's see, 55% of small business owners are finding it more difficult to hire workers than before the pandemic. That's absolutely true across the board. Um, I mean, I've got buddies that own hotels that can't hire cleaning staff, uh, they, they're actually having to block off entire, uh, floors from their hotels because they can't get anybody to clean them. Forty, uh, 34% say it was significantly more difficult. 46% of small business owners said employee costs have risen. I mean, that's, that was inevitable. 24% saying that they have risen by at least 11%. Okay. Well, there, now we're just getting into me reading off percentages. Anyway, uh, that's interesting. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it looks like, uh, you know, unfortunately, minority owned businesses have been affected uh, way worse um, by this the pandemic than others. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to do about that. I, you know, wish there was I don't know. I'm going to think on that. If you're if you're a minority that owns a business and you need help, reach out. We're happy to talk to you and, and, you know, I'll help you have a conversation with your landlord or do whatever if you need it. Um, okay, moving on. This is Globe Street. Uh, landlords frustrated as CDC extends its eviction moratorium. Instead of ending in June, the moratorium on tenant evictions now stretches through July 31st. Landlords have been frustrated by this since the very beginning, right? And, and I understand why you would want to do it. You don't want people getting kicked out in the street in the middle of a pandemic uh, because of circum- You know, people can't pay because of circumstances that are completely out of their control. However... You know there are plenty of people that are taking advantage of the whole situation. They're not paying rent intentionally, even though they can, because they're getting by with these programs. And and you know, I mean, of course, in every in every situation, you're gonna have people that are taking advantage of whatever's going on. But it's incredibly, it's got to be incredibly frustrating um, for residential landlords dealing with that. Now that's one of the reasons why uh, I'm very happy that we are not diversified into residential. Uh, because you don't have that problem with with commercial. I mean, look, it's, you own you're you're a business? You're not going to pay rent? Get the hell out of my building. Um, and, and most judges kind of take that same approach. Let's see. July 4th may be Independence Day, but landlords were counting on June 30th to end the COVID-related housing eviction moratorium. Now they have to wait another month. The CDC announced an extension through July, uh, which is intended to be the final extension of the moratorium. Little... Uh, little consolation to investors and operators of residential rental properties. I mean, of course it is. It's a the continuation of a nationwide one size fits all federal eviction moratorium is out of step with the significant progress made in controlling COVID-19 and restoring the economy. I mean, you'll get a city like Nashville, where it's booming, people are back to work, everything's been basically I mean, normal for all intents and purposes for the last six or seven months, it doesn't make any sense to have an eviction moratorium here. Because it, it, you're, you don't have a job because you don't want one at this point here. That's at least how I mean, that's what I think. Multifamily landlords and managers have operated throughout the pandemic with a flexible and compassionate approach for residents in need, which is great. I mean, that, that, that was one of the best parts to see when we first entered the pandemic was that people were working together to make sure that you just weren't kicking people out of the street. I mean, of course, there was a moratorium immediately. But even on the commercial side, we worked with everybody as much as we could. This has obviously been an extremely trying year plus for the entire sector with the lack of clarity on when the moratorium will ultimately end. Um, yeah, I do expect landlords to continue working with residents with the ultimate goal of avoiding evictions wherever possible. Most landlords, I don't know a single landlord who would take an eviction if there were better alternative routes. I mean, nobody wants to do, go through all of that um, just because it's such a pain. Um, Andy, did your, uh, did your roommate find some a
1: yes well no there's apparently a story
0: (laughs) i can tell because you keep laughing um so (laughs) we before before the show started andy's roommate was trying to learn how to say uh, i would like some ice cream please in spanish and uh i would imagine he didn't say it right (laughs) uh let's see here Uh, paul getty ceo of first guardian group which provides services for real estate investors including many mom and pop owners tells they these are the people that have to pay the bills and in some cases are close to bankruptcy because the tenants are not paying. What's being reported to me is that the tenants in many cases are doing well. They're using COVID excuses for not paying rent, which is creating a lot of pressure on many of our clients to sell properties. This could be a complete aside, but uh, one of my buddies was, uh, he pays cash for everything. And he was at the... Um, he was, uh, gosh, what's that place called? I don't know. He was, he went to a place where you could buy hot tubs in Nashville. And, uh, the guy asked him if he was going to finance the thing. He said, no, I'm just going to pay cash. And he was like, how many people finance a hot tub? And he goes, almost everybody that comes in here and buys a hot tub finances, the hot tub, which if you know anything about money is one of the worst things that you could ever do with your money ever." You are you are financing a depreciating asset that will literally not improve your life by so much that that it's worth taking that risk on. And uh, the guy said that the majority of the people that are buying hot tubs are using their uh, COVID nineteen checks, which I thought was really interesting. At least it's going back into the economy, though, right? Hey, it, you know, serving uh, <laughs> serving part of its purpose. While there has been relief money available to pay rents and keep tenants in buildings, access has not been simple. The problem is an an easier problem to to digest if you're a larger property owner, of course. I mean, that's that's why I'm a huge advocate for multifamily over single-family residential, because if you've got a 200-unit apartment complex and 20 people move out or 20 people stop paying because of COVID, uh, you're... You're going to notice it, but it's not going to be absolutely devastating to you where you're going to be on the verge of filing bankruptcy. Um, Let's see. In some areas, the extension of the moratorium won't be the last hurdle for landlords. In addition to being precluded by the CDC moratorium for pursuing the eviction of covered persons, New York landlords are also prohibited from pursuing eviction of tenants who submit a hardship declaration as governed by New York legislation, which stays eviction proceedings until August 31st. I don't even know what that is. I don't even know how you would want to get into being a residential landlord in Manhattan or in New York city in general. It sounds terrible. Sounds absolutely terrible. Okay, cool. This next one um, is also from globe street, small cities poised for a rapid retail recovery. I've been, I'm a big fan of retail. Always have been retail did really well through the pandemic. If you were keeping an eye on the right kinds of retail, big box of course has been dying a slow death, which it deserves. Um, and, but all the other retails doing great. The population out of major metros during the pandemic will likely create a heyday for the retail sector in smaller cities. Uh, Oh, we'll get that. Small cities that have benefited from population growth during the pandemic are also poised for rapid retail recovery. These metros include Nashville, Austin, and Charlotte, and they're seeing increased retail leasing demand from both national and mom and pop tenants. We've had a ton of people that are moving here from other cities that are just tired of it. Uh, It isn't only population growth driving the demand for retail. Major companies are also expanding in the southeast. Amazon and Oracle have announced plans to open offices in Nashville and Austin, and Apple is expanding in Raleigh. I mean, Oracle just announced 8,500 jobs and a whole campus a few weeks ago. These smaller markets are attractive to smaller companies. What? Those are not smaller companies. Employees can have a shorter commute and can own some land or a house in case something like the pandemic happens again. And they were working from home for six months or a year. That's fair. The population and job growth stabilized smaller metros through the pandemic, so few saw the retail tumble that occurred in major metros. In Nashville, for example, we didn't seem to have a slowdown, especially on the development side, as what we saw in some of the bigger markets like New York or Chicago. That's absolutely true. I mean, if anything, it picked up. We put under contract some of the largest development deals we've ever done in 2020. We continue to have an active 2020 for development, and I think that is part of the strength of the market as well. That's Jeff Pape from GBT Realty. Let's see. Retailers are, new retailers are expanding into these markets. Um, let's see. Urban mixed-use product type that had never looked at Nashville before. Certainly, some of these are new retailers that are used to being in that kind of product type. Um, that's interesting concise to saying, Charlotte seems to be booming. There seems to have been booming for about 10 years now. Absolutely. I mean, Charlotte's a great city. Um, it's it's definitely on, on the watch list. I would keep that in your radar uh, if you're interested in investing in any cities in the Southeast. I mean, it's got all the – it checks all the boxes for me, which is it's a progressive blue city in a red state, right? Like, to me, I I don't know that there's anything – I mean – Every city that we feel is worth investing in is a blue dot in a red sea. I mean, I don't know of a single one that's red and red or blue and blue, Um, or even a red city in a blue state. Um, Now that I think about it, so yeah, I mean, look, if it's a blue city in a red state, that automatically is, you know, checks the box of yeah, we should probably look into this. Um, Let's see. We're seeing more and more that there are national tenants, and then you s- drop straight down to mom and pops, and we're seeing that trend more. So what, what they're saying is that you're starting to see these national tenants that are immediately next door to mom and pops, which you haven't really seen before. Typically, the shopping centers have been split up to where it was like mom and pops over here, and it's a cheaper, not as nice looking shopping center, and then you have the national guys over here, which to me has always been so backwards because it just automatically makes you think that national retailers are better than your local shops, and that's not the case. Uh, I'm not going to say it's not the case in every case, but like, it's just not true. I mean, there are, there are plenty of local groups that are way better than anything national. So it's it's good to see that, you know, we're starting to to kind of mix those up. There are many opportunities in the Southeast. Awesome. Cool. Well, let's jump into, and do you have anything else you want to add on to that? Rock and roll. All right, let's jump on into private equity deal dives. So this week, we are going to start off with Blackstone betting $6 billion on buying and renting homes. Uh, This is an article from the Wall Street Journal. Um, If you all have been following me for a while, you know that uh, I'm not a fan of single family home investing. Uh, But these massive REITs are. And I think their approach to it is probably why uh, it's different because look, they're buying these massive portfolios, they're able to get them financed like apartment complexes, which I think is really interesting, um, which means they get better debt terms. And, you know, when you buy a portfolio of 100 homes, I still think that it's not as good as having a 100 unit apartment complex, but it's a totally different product type, right? I mean, at that point, you can't really compare it. It's like comparing, you know, multifamily and office space. They're just different, different ways of collecting money. Deal for Home Partners of America, owner of over 17,000 houses in the U.S., as latest sign Wall Street believes housing market will stay hot. Blackstone Group, Inc., has agreed to buy a company that buys and rents single-family homes in a $6 billion deal. The investment firm confirmed Tuesday that it has reached a deal uh, to acquire Home Partners of America. Um, again, that's 17,000 homes. They buy homes, rent them out, and offer their tenants the chance to eventually buy them from them. That's interesting. Uh, U.S. home sales soared last year in their fastest pace in 14 years. Uh, when low mortgage rates and the rise of remote work during the pandemic sent buyers scrambling to find larger living spaces. The lack of homes for sale. I mean, look, you can't build homes fast enough to accommodate the demand right now. Um, I mean, Nashville alone has a, has a gap of, I think, 30 or 35,000 affordable units by, by 2025. I mean, it's, it's a lot of units. You, can't, you just cannot build fast enough. Uh, it's slowed the pace of home sales in recent months, but on a historic basis, the market seems or remains red hot. And analysts say demand from millennials entering their prime home buying years is expected to fuel demand for years to come. It will be interesting to see what will happen as millennials enter prime home buying years. I mean, you know, millennials have really paved the way to make renting cool and, uh, you know, all of the all of the benefits that come from that. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what goes on there. Um, But I mean, look, that's, that's a massive deal. I mean, Blackstone is one of the largest investment groups out there, if not the I mean, yeah, they're definitely one of top. Um, And for them to be jumping in and buying these multi home portfolios like that is a pretty big sign that you know what home renting is here to stay. So the residential market is still hot. And also, uh, you know, buying these massive single-family home
1: portfolios are, is still worth looking at. And they bought it in cash, too. So imagine sitting on just $6 billion just casually. Yeah.
0: Yeah, let me just go uh, get that. It's, it's you know, under my mattress. Mm-hmm. Well, that's crazy. But, I mean, hey, look, that's a, that's another sign, too, right? I mean, a lot of these, uh, these firms were sitting on a whole bunch of cash going into the pandemic. They didn't have... Any, nothing popped up that they could buy. There were no distressed assets that came available for sale. So now they're sitting on all this cash that they still have to pay a return to their investors on. So at this point, they're, that's why you're seeing all of these acquisitions, all of these mergers. They're doing anything they can to just get more market share. It's really interesting to watch. Okay, this next article is from Commercial Observer. First Key Homes nabs $2.1 billion loan on more than 9,000 single-family rentals. Um, it'll be interesting to see if Andy's wildcard has anything to do with single family rentals since, uh, he's loading up our private equity deal dive with them. No, it doesn't. Oh, interesting. Single family rental housing market accelerated last year amid the pandemic as climbing home prices pushed many to fall back on renting. Investors poured into the space and rental home construction ballooned in 2020 to meet demand despite a turbulent economic landscape that created supply chain issues. Yeah, I mean, construction prices. I mean, construction's ridiculous. If you do, if you've been looking at building or, you know, constructing anything in the last, I don't know, fifteen months, it's just not possible uh, to hit. I mean, the the numbers are so crazy that we're exploring alternative construction methods, and we feel that we're going to hit those at a better price than, um, or as almost, like within the same ballpark as what it would have cost to do lumber, which is crazy. Because they used to be so far apart that it wasn't worth doing. Um, Let's see. Already this year, there have been 11 single-family rental CMBS deals, accounting for more than $6.7 billion that have either closed or are near closing. That's crazy. Single-family rental securitizations, which started to gain steam in the early 2010s, have characteristics of both CMBS and residential mortgage-backed securities deals. Um. I mean, I'm probably not gonna dive into that because that would get really complicated. But uh, basically, what this is saying is, it, you know, wasn't uh, all that long ago in 2014, Kroll bond rating agency developed a methodology for rating single family rental securitizations just one year after the single family rental securitization went to market in 2013. So um, let's see. First Key Homes has secured just under $2.1 billion in CMBS debt on a collection of 9,328 rental homes. Uh, The deal, which is First Key's third single-family rental securitization, is expected to close on July 15th. Morgan Stanley is the lender that originated and sold the five-year fixed-rate and interest-only first lien mortgage loan. So, like, you look at that, like, that's a multifamily deal right? Like that is not your traditional single family home investment kind of offering. You can't really get terms like that, which is really what makes these so uh, attractive. Portfolio includes homes that are located across 16 states with the Atlanta, Miami and Charlotte areas being home to more than 31% of the portfolio. Florida, Georgia and North Carolina are account for 56 and a half percent of the portfolio. So look at that. Southeast. It's all about the Southeast, baby. Um, Despite the pandemic, the the recession-resistant reputation recession-resistant reputation say that three times fast of single-family rentals mostly held up for the portfolio. Nearly 93% of rents were collected in May, and about 96% were collected in April. With uh, let's see, 90-day rent collections, which includes collections that were had up to three months after they were first billed, ranged anywhere from 94.4% to 98%. I mean, look, they're doing well, right? Doing really well, so uh, let's see. Keep an eye on um, you know these residential real estate portfolios. Um, you know there are REITs out there uh, that you can invest in that buy this type of product if uh, if that's something you're up for. All right, let's dive on into prop tech. Let's see what we got going on for us this week. CNBC: uh, 3D printed housing developments suddenly take off. Here's what they look like. I love 3D printing houses. I love alternative construction methods. There are so many more, so many ways that are more efficient to build homes and to build buildings than what we've been doing for the last 50 years. So it's great to see that there are groups that are finally really taking this on. Icon, a pioneer in 3D printed homes in the U.S., just completed four homes in East Austin, Texas. The two to four bedroom homes are now on the market starting in the $400,000 range. A much larger community of 3D printed homes is being planned in Rancho Mirage, California uh, by competitor Mighty Buildings. Cool. Let's see. The first home that went up for sale hasn't even been built yet. The company, SQ4D, printed a model home at a concrete yard in Long Island, New York, and hosted more than 100 showings. The new home will be printed on a lot nearby that's pretty cool. Let's just build a house to see if it works. (laughs) Like, what a cool what a cool product to test. Uh, Let's see icon a pioneer in 3d printed homes in the US just completed four homes in East Austin, Texas in partnership with Kansas City based developer three strands uh, starting in the 400k range demand has been off the charts hard to manage even feedback could not have been more positive. City of Austin one of the fastest growing metropolitan markets in the country. It's already embraced the concept of 3d printed homes. So zoning and permitting was relatively easy. I mean, that's, that's one thing that uh, is really tough when you're doing these prefab or modular or, you know, 3d printed homes is local zoning and codes regulations, right? I mean, how, you know, typically, when you're going through the building process, you have the inspector come out on site multiple times to inspect various aspects and stages of the construction so that they know that it was built right right um so you know if you're going to do that in a different way how are you really going to monitor that we built four homes in the configuration we did because we could do it within the existing zoning it's pretty cool Uh, let's get into how they're made icon prints the homes on site using its vulcan construction system uh, that spits out a proprietary extrudable concrete uh, according to Boward, who added that this is the highest speed, lowest cost method. It also allows for the most flexibility in floor plans. Let's see. At the new development, Icon 3D printed the first floor and then built the second story conventionally, but that allowed them to certify the wall system for two-story construction. It's the quickest path from imagination to built options. Hmm. So you can see there, there's an image of it. You can see, I mean, the, the lines and the concrete there. And they just built on top of it. I wonder why they wouldn't just print the, the second one. Big Show is saying smart homes are extremely cool. The problem is transportation of the homes. You're absolutely right. I mean, that's one of the biggest expenses in these pre-manufactured homes. I mean, we've been doing this a lot, trying to dial it in for a project that we're doing. And it's expensive. I mean, what does it cost? Any like sixteen cents a mile or something like? What was the what was the cost they said to factor in for that?
1: Yeah, to like ship something from North Carolina was like fifteen thousand dollars, something like that, twenty thousand dollars.
0: Yeah. So when you're talking about a you know two hundred thousand uh, dollar piece of building, and I mean, that was for them. one
1: module of it, right? Yeah. That's yeah. that's not you know everything together. That's right. So. You know, fifteen k a
0: unit. That's almost ten percent of your price, right? It's a lot. Boward said construction of the homes is ten to thirty percent cheaper and several months faster than conventional construction. This is especially important given the rise in building costs and conventional construction materials like steel, aluminum, and lumber. Um, let's see, sustainable. It's, I mean. The materials are so much uh, it's – they're just as good of materials to build buildings out of. You know, look, the when you start looking at the housing crisis, the affordability crisis, to me, there's no way that we're not going to move very heavily into this. So the groups that are investing in it on the, right now will do really well over the next 20 years. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine walking out on a job site and – you know, you 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 go out and you clear the land, and then the next day there's just a printer that gets set up out there, and there's a technician that's watching it print 50 homes. I mean, it'll be amazing to just watch that happen. Um, so goes into further a little further into the design, some of the looks, the aesthetic appeal. I mean, they look like normal homes. You wouldn't think anything of these, right? I mean, that concrete is much more efficient in terms of, uh, you know, insulation, all that kind of stuff. So that's cool. I mean, it's, it's really great to see that this is finally starting to happen. That's um, definitely not at scale, right? But you've got four homes that have now been 3d printed in Austin. It's really cool to see and relatively affordably. I mean, the, the median house in the United States is three is what two 260, give or take. The median house in Nashville is $350,000, so for these to be $400,000 houses and they're two to four bedrooms, that's, I mean, in Austin, Texas, which is a hotter market than Nashville, doesn't seem like a bad price to me. But all right, let's go ahead and move on into reading REITs, now for real estate investment trusts. This week, we're going to be diving into Cell Tower REITs, um, all in on 5G. 5G has and will continue to have a major impact- on these REITs. So let's, uh, let's see how that has uh, started to to impact uh, the sector. Cell Tower REITs, the single largest REIT sector, that's, I didn't know that, uh, are again pulling their weight after uncharacteristically lagging earlier this year, catalyzed by strong first quarter earnings and major mergers and acquisitions developments. AT&T and Verizon ended their tumultuous foray into the media business this year, divesting their capital-draining ancillary businesses as competition is heated up with T-Mobile and DISH Network. Wireless network spending is poised to accelerate as the 5G rollout advances. All three cell tower REITs boosted their full-year guidance during earnings earnings season and now expect double-digit FFO growth. Wow. Cell Tower REITs remain in growth mode, utilizing a sector-leading cost of capital and favorable comp, uh, competitive positioning. American Tower acquired $15 billion in additional assets in early 2021 through two major deals. While no longer cheap, Cell Tower REITs should remain a growth engine of the real estate sector, and risks to technological disruption remain distant, particularly as carriers go all in on 5G network buildouts.
1: I wanna go, Tyler, to the there's the next chart. Yeah, that one. I think that's kind of interesting. Of just like essentially three companies own all the cell towers, and three companies are all of the wireless carriers in the United States. So it's just a huge monopoly on this stuff. Which yeah, is- that's
0: really interesting. I wonder why that is. I mean, I know it's obviously there's a lot of red tape you've got to dive, you know, cut through to, to make this happen, but I mean, so if you if you're listening on the podcast cell tower ownership is American Tower, Crown Castle and SBA Communications with other making up 25%. So those three take 75% of the market. On wireless carriers, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile make up 95% of wireless carriers with Dish making up the other 5%. So I mean you look at that and it's yeah, three wow. in each sector dominate almost completely.
1: So apparently the whole the most important thing is that all these companies are going all in on 5G. So we can skip to two charts from now. So not this next chart, but this the one after that actually. Of like what 5G does. I don't know if you can zoom in a little bit, but yeah. essentially the point the point is that 5G is supposed to be like 10 to 100 times faster. It's going to have almost no lag at all you can have way more devices, but the problem is is that you don't get as much range. So if you look at kind of the tower on the left, it's the one on the right, The that's from 3G to 4G. And then you, you started needing more equipment and stuff. From 4G to 5G, you, you need even more equipment. So the, the theory is we're going to 5G. It's gonna be a billion times faster. You're gonna be able to stream 4K or whatever is after 4K, 8K, I think there's 8K now. You can stream 8K over your phone in like five seconds. You know, that's where we're going, which would be kind of cool. But in order to get there, you're going to need to way increase the amount of cell towers you have. And so you think about it, as actually a big problem. Like you think about downtown cities or, or in places to put these, you, there's not a lot of good sites and spots to put cell towers. So it's just kind of one of those things you don't really ever think about, but it's actually going to be, huge in trying to figure out where the real estate for these cell towers are going to go in order to support the infrastructure for 5g yeah unfortunately a
0: lot of them can go on top of existing buildings so mm-hmm. like they'll call shopping centers and office buildings in areas that you know because i mean that's tech, really that's real estate that's not getting utilized so why not throw it on top of a building like that uh, but yeah i mean for the larger ones i mean they need a lot of land right so it, it's tough to figure out how you're going to solve that that problem
1: So all the rest, yeah, the, the rest, I think the most important, we can just go down. They have the the bullish and bearish. bearish. Yeah. Cool. This is from uh, seeking alpha,
0: by the Mm -hmm. way, these links are in the description below. Of course, if you're interested in seeing uh, it's further up, Uh, if you're interested in diving further into this. Yeah, here we go. Okay. Five reasons to be bullish on cell tower rates, mobile data demand, uh, I mean, of course. Look, mobile data is only going up. We're only using more and more devices that are connected to it. Hub of five G macro cell t- towers provide the most economical mix of coverage and capacity. Um, pricing power over carriers. Cell tower REITs have strong competitive positioning in the communication sector more than any other real estate sector. Asset ownership is highly concentrated. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's almost a, it's a, what is a, a triopoly? A triopoly. Yeah. Um, Network densification, 5G is all about that. With significant operating leverage, 5G-related equipment upgrades and adding tenants to existing towers produces significant revenue with limited costs and international opportunity. Uh, Wireless internet is the only option in many international markets, which lack the landline infrastructure. So those are five reasons to be bullish on cell tower REITs. Now, here are five reasons to be bearish. Technological obsolescence. While there's little risk of technological obsolescence within the next decade, technologies like low orbit satellite or small cell networks could potentially reduce the need for macro towers like uh, Elon's, you know, Starlink or whatever it's called. You know, I mean, if if that gets solved, then these are completely obsolete. Tenant consolidation. There are only four major players in the U.S. carrier industry, including DISH Network, uh, limiting the number of potential tenants for these REITs. Carriers want to reduce costs, Cell companies pay 20 to 30% of their revenue towards these tower companies, and carriers are actively seeking ways to gain leverage over these REITs, uh, including building their own towers. Uh, Lack of land ownership, REITs own less than 30% of the underlying land and lease the other 70% under long term ground leases. So competition from carriers or other tower firms could bid up prices upon lease renewal and international risk. American Towers' struggles in the India market uh, highlight the uncertain political and operating environment in many international markets. So high potential growth comes with high potential risk. So there you have it for uh, cell tower rates. I mean, Andy, are you bullish or bearish?
1: Uh, I'd probably be bullish. I think that there's a – just the case is we need more cell phone stuff the end (laughs) and we don't have enough and people are going to want way faster speeds it's like i definitely want 5g internet like and that's going to be able to solve so even in just the united states alone so many internet problems right uh having 5g so uh for especially rural places that don't have broadband so i think it's going to be coming i think it's going to be huge
0: yeah exactly i mean I, i completely agree i'm bullish too i mean i i don't diversify my portfolio with REITs. Um, But if I did, I would definitely have cell tower in there. Um, Look, I mean, we're we're not we're not using any less data. I mean, every day we're using more and more. And even if something like Starlink comes along, how long until it it is capable of managing the just sheer volume of traffic uh, that they have to have on there? Anyway, awesome. Well, time for our favorite segment of the week. Wildcard, Andy, what are you going to come up with
1: a jingle for uh, for this section? We can we can we can do a little dance. We can make a little song. That's going to be coming up next, guys. But thank you so much for sticking around <laughs> to the end of the show. Every week we bring you live at the Commercial Real Estate Investors Weekly Podcast all the best and top real estate news. At the end of each show, I cover on the Wildcard section something cool, interesting, different about real estate. And in this case, today we are gonna be talking about real estate, except it may not be so real. This is virtual real estate. And this article here, people are paying insane amounts of real money for virtual real estate that you can't even visit yet. So welcome to the future, boys and girls, where essentially, due to things like, you may have heard of a little thing called Bitcoin and the blockchain, you are allowed to invest in these platforms that essentially allow you to buy virtual real estate so as good you know real estate investors and developers i thought we had to bring you guys one of the next frontiers potentially in real estate development so as this article says a plot of land that you can call your own a couple thousand square feet of untouched soil trees and all where you can let your imagination run wild a dream come true right well sort of this is virtual real estate and you can't even visit it yet where you can buy in places like genesis city plots of land for like $200,000. Wow. That's a lot of money. By 2020, people have estimated already virtual reality and augmented reality are predicted to rake in an estimated $162 billion in revenue. Already a pretty big sector even before COVID, right? So one of these big companies that does it is this company called Decentraland and allows you to essentially buy land, cryptocurrency, and parcels of uh land on there and you can build homes you can build houses you can build a casino watch music attend a workshop shop with friends start a business on this virtual reality platform and if you build up a nice building you can then sell it to somebody else who will pay you more money for it just like in real life right and it, it just be it, the it's hard to believe that this is real but it is right it, people are willing to pay money for it and at the end of the day what is valuation but what someone's willing to pay for it so with nfts taking off and what nfts are are non-fungible tokens essentially just means a way of tracking using blockchain technology whether or not you own something and the real real estate market buffeted by covid virtual real worlds like decentraland could be well placed to capitalize so decentraland as we've talked about is a role-playing game that is around a city called Genesis City, and you're allowed to go in there, you do stuff, you buy land, and look at this price appreciation. In 2017, the year Decentraland launched, land parcels sold for USD $100 per parcel. In 2019, a portion of the Genesis Plaza estate, called Estate 31, 331, sold for $80,000. Okay, so that's $100 to $80,000 in, in two years. Not bad. The last month, the price of an undeveloped parcel of land had increased to roughly 8,000 mana, a 14-fold increase in just three years. So 14x return in three years, not too bad either. Since the game's launch, there have been more than 50,000 secondary land sales, totaling $30 million at an average price of 560 So that is pretty crazy. This virtual real estate is going to be increasing in popularity. And I wanted to show you guys here as well. You can even see, like, this is the games on Decentraland where people are just going in to hang out. You make your little character and you buy your land. You can go on there. can buy this parcel right now parcel negative 3810 for 8700 mana and i think they're about 50 cents each so they're for four this thing is four thousand dollars right now and then apparently there are other things you can buy you can buy if it will ever load you can buy houses you can buy states you can buy exactly as they said uh let's see super rare one and then this one this one's cost like way more twelve thousand 12,000 man, Uh, this one's a fashion estate. Oh, you see that? This is one block. This one has, this one has two blocks, pretty crazy. So the point I wanted to bring up here is looking at all these pictures is real estate is a function of location and supply and demand. So why not in virtual reality as well? You know, that's could be something that, especially if you don't have all the money right now to go Big on real real estate. As long as people want it, as long as people want it, that's where the money's going to be. Every real estate market is local. We've been talking about it all throughout the show. You know, places like Las Vegas versus Nashville, it's different markets have different supply and demand. And the markets are doing differently and better for worse because of it. Well, this is a market like anything else, and it has supply and demand. If you're willing to buy it, if you're willing to take the risk, you could be turning, like they said, you bought in 2017, a hundred dollars into however many thousands of dollars afterwards. Not too bad. So, I just thought this would be kind of a fun topic to bring up real quick about virtual real estate for you all. And who knows? I think you know we're talking about investing in Puerto Rico. I think I really want to uh, consider investing in some uh, some virtual real estate too. Why not? Yeah. That's really interesting. I,
0: I, uh, I mean, I just, I don't get it, <laughs> but Hey, maybe that's just, I mean, clearly it's just me. Uh, maybe it'll take a few years, but
1: it's cause you're um, a boomer, Tyler.
0: That's yeah. Basically. Uh, yeah. I mean, hell you start seeing virtual real estate and people are paying 12,000 mana for something. I guess, yeah, maybe I'm missing out. <laughs> I missed the, missed the train on that one. That's uh, that's awesome, Andy, though. That, that, that's a great wild card. I mean, it's it's uh, there's a lot of crazy things happening in the world of commercial real estate and technology right now. And so it's, it's fun to get to see that kind of stuff. Uh, for those of y'all that are joining us on the YouTube channel. Thank you again for all those questions. It was awesome. I, I always love when uh, when the audience jumps in and, and starts you know, giving their commentary and asking questions. It makes this a lot more fun for us. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, please leave us a review. Uh, and a rating. Uh, and feel free to join in sometime live. We're, we're always live Mondays at 530pm Central Standard Time, uh, going over the commercial real estate weekly update. So until uh, until next week, guys, uh, we'll, we'll see you then.